Hey there, thanks for tuning in to Ermia Matters, a podcast about higher education, risk management, and insurance. Let's get to it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Ermia Matters. I'm Julie Groves, the Director of Risk Services at Wake Forest University, and I'm your host for today's discussion about Title IX. With me is Joe Storch, who's the Senior Director of Compliance and Innovation Solutions at Grand River Solutions. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Great to be with you. So before we get started, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. It is great to be back on the Ermia Matters podcast. I worked in-house in higher education for about a decade and a half and recently came to Grand River Solutions, where I think a bit about how to innovate approaches to you know, help colleges with compliance, reduce risk, and also do a better job serving students, serving our faculty and staff in our community, especially in the areas of safety and equity. And I have been privileged to be at a number of Ermia conferences over the last decade, and I've just so enjoyed meeting and getting to know and working with the national leadership and the colleges and universities that are members and leaders and board. It's just been a real privilege. Well, great. And so I always like to ask people when I do this podcast, when you were little, was it your dream to grow up and work in risk management? Was that what you wanted to do? I'm going to take the Fifth Amendment on that question. I I think once my career in professional hockey didn't pan out, (laughs) I think this was a close second. Well, I have never had anybody who has said, yes, I always wanted to be in risk management when I grew up. So, you know, so that, but that's, that's good. I mean, I'm sorry about hockey, but you know, hockey's loss is our gain, certainly. Yeah, I spent most of my childhood on risk creation. Uh, so <laughs> now I go. get to spend my go. adulthood there on risk go. reduction. So why don't we talk a little bit about Title IX today, since our that's why we're here. So we're hearing a lot about the fact that the Biden administration is going to be issuing new Title IX regulations. So is this is this sort of a deja vu thing? Didn't we just go through this process? You know, indeed, I I am afraid that we're going to spend the rest of our careers on a pendulum swinging back and forth between administrations of different political parties in how they address Title IX. We are just short of 50 years of Title IX, and we have seen so much change in the last 10 to 12 years when the Biden administration indeed has said that this spring, which is now going to be, you know, early summer, they will issue proposed regulations. And one of the things that I want to mention, and I know we want to talk about, is those proposed regulations are simply a proposal. It is the department saying what it thinks it may do when it finalizes. It will open a 60-day comment period, and then the department will go back and, and think about it and review those comments and the like. So there will be no changes to Title IX policies this summer based on this. This is the proposed, not the final. But yes, we are restarting the process, a process that was a challenging implementation for many institutions the last time around, which doesn't feel that long ago, right? We're just mm-hmm. over two years since the last uh, process. And indeed, we will be starting it again. But it is likely that the department will be taking a different direction than in the prior administration. For folks who don't deal with this every day, what is the process we should expect for the Title IX regulations? And what what sort of timeline do you see coming? I mean, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but can you expand on that a little bit more? 
It is not a quick process. The department will issue proposed regulations. They are currently having those reviewed by the Office of Management and Budget's OIRA unit, and then they will come out. They will be both the proposed regulations as well as a preamble, the sort of commentary that the department is thinking about. At that point, the only thing for institutions to do is decide whether to comment, and if so, what to say, uh, technical comments, supportive or oppositional comments. These are things that the institution can do. The department will leave that comment period open for at least 60 days. They may do a little bit longer than that. And that will be the opportunity for not only institutions, but also activists and anyone to be able to submit a comment. The department will likely receive tens of thousands, maybe even over 100,000 comments, well over 120,000 comments were received last time. And then the department will have to go back. They will have to read all of those comments. They will do additional research and they will craft final regulations. Those regulations will absolutely not be taking effect for the 22-23 academic year. It is unlikely that they will have that done in time to take effect for the 23-24 academic year. And it is possible that they will be in effect for the 24-25 academic year. So this is not something that will require changes this summer. Folks might remember that the summer of 2020, there was a lot of uh, changes that needed to be made in a short time. But that will not be happening this summer. The department has indicated in conversations and This is not to hold them to anything, but they've indicated uh, that we're going to expect something more like a normal implementation time period. In the Higher Education Act, when that is changed, we see changes that are finalized in September that take effect next July. I think what they've signaled, and again, nothing is definite, but what they've signaled is we're unlikely to see 100 days to implement 2,000 pages uh, you know, during a global pandemic, which many institutions found challenging. So there are many steps in the process. And of course, we might actually see litigation. Uh, we saw litigation the last time around. A number of state attorney generals, attorneys general have indicated that they are likely to file litigation over parts of the regulations that we haven't even seen that yet, so we can't be sure. So it may be an extended time period, but we can say absolutely clearly that this is something to watch, to monitor, to become aware of, but we will not be seeing emergency uh, changes this summer based on just the proposed regulations. So just out of curiosity, when they get 120,000 comments from different you know, entities, institutions, so if my institution sends them a comment or comments, do they then respond and say, thank you for your comments, here's why we're not going to address them, or do they, they ju- there's no communication at all, they just take the comments and go forward? That's correct. They, they will not respond. Uh, they will not say, thank you, you make a good point on this or that. But we know that they read all of them. And some of the comments are um, not substantive, right? They'll People will write things and, and you know, that there might be personal accounts, there might be um, other things that are important, but they're not substantive to the text of the regulation. So they're, they're not going to, there's no suggested changes. They're not going to make any changes on the basis of it. There will be other comments that'll say, I support you or I oppose you for whatever political reason. And then there will be really substantive comments. The associations will issue substantive comments, many higher education institutions and uh, law firms, activist groups, etc. And the way that they respond is you look through the final regulations, you look through the preamble, and it will say, a commenter said 
blah, 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 blah. We actually believe this or we've changed it. We haven't changed it. So sometimes, and I was privileged last time to be part of an 82-page comment. So we made a lot of different points the last time around. And I was privileged to be able to read through the preamble and see a comment and knowing that that was a comment that we had raised. Now, it's possible other uh, folks had raised them, but you tend to see them uh, seriatim together. Uh, so sometimes you see your comments and you see the response to the comments and you may agree or disagree with the comments, but that's about the closest you'll get. Okay. Well, that that's that's helpful. So what what can risk managers and insurance professionals do to help their institutional colleagues prepare for this? Well, it is so critical for folks to work across the institution to think about how the changes proposed would affect their institution for better or worse. And risk managers and insurers over the last decade, and I've, I've been witness to it, have significantly raised their awareness and understanding their ability to conduct analysis in here um, because they're not just trying to respond to things that happened, but trying to improve things uh, before they happen. And that is a really interesting lens to be able to contribute to the conversation. They often have a very um, you know, broad uh, scope of uh, knowledge about the institution. And sometimes they will take a look at things and see challenges or see inconsistencies in ways that folks from other departments who are you know, much more in the weeds or much more in the details might not see. So I strongly encourage them to, to get themselves up to speed when the regulations come out, to participate in those conversations, whether it's with campus council and Title IX, student affairs, uh, equity uh, uh, folks, and otherwise, and be able to bring that lens of thinking, how do we make this campus safer? How do we reduce risk by actually making things safer and better. Um, uh, and, th and that is, I, I think, an important lens that they can bring to it. A lot of people have called for a full rewrite of the 2020 Title IX final rule, but you aren't expecting that. So what are some of the areas that you think are more likely to change? That's correct. My sense is this is not going to be the select all, delete, and save that some of the activists had hoped for and expected when the president took office. I think we're going to see some changes within the Title IX regulations. And of course, nobody knows. Nobody has seen the draft. But there are certain things that we can be pretty sure about. There was a provision in the 2020 final rule that said that if you do not submit to cross-examination, that that's the, was the department's word, that none of the prior statements you would make outside of that hearing could be used uh, by the decision maker in the hearing. Uh, that was uh, vacated by a district judge in Massachusetts. The department adopted that vacator as saying that part of the rule was not effective, and it's nearly certain to come out this time. We may see some changes on the due process style requirements that may be more appropriate at public institutions, which have constitutional due process, than at private institutions, which of course are private organizations and are not bound by constitutional due process. We might see some changes to the cross-examination style. The 2020 final rule said that had to be direct cross-examination by the advisor of choice. We might see a fallback to silence on that issue, allowing schools to be able to use a process that is appropriate based on the federal circuit that they're in, based on the state that they're in. There are certain federal circuits like the Sixth Circuit that itself as a court says, 
public institutions must include direct cross-examination in such a hearing. There are other circuits like the First Circuit here on the East Coast that has gone in another direction, allowing what is sometimes referred to as trauma-informed cross-examination, that cross-examination going through the panel or the hearing officer. There are some states, California recently passed a law that said that, no, to the extent that it is not required by the federal government, you cannot use the direct cross-examination. So my guess would be that the department would pull back. They can't bar it. They can't require it. They can't, you know, they, they will feel that, or at least they they likely will not feel they want to require it. They certainly can't bar it because certain states are, are required to do it. So they might pull back into that. We are hearing a lot of possibility of changes around the definition of uh, sex under Title IX. The department has clearly... Uh, Following the Bostock decision last year, they have clearly moved in a direction of saying that sex under Title IX covers sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression. There have been a number of folks from certain political positions who have taken exception with that. And I think we're going to see something interesting. Either the department is going to say for the purpose of sexual harassment and sexual violence, someone who is subjected to that on the basis of sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression uh, will be covered by Title IX. I think that would get one level of reaction. If Of course, they use these regulations to say that Title IX requires equity in all sorts of other areas. That might get a different kind of reaction. And I'm not talking about bad, good. That's not what we're talking about on this podcast, but just the level of reaction that they might get, the level of litigation and the like might change. And I think we might see some changes to some of the due process style notice provisions that never really made perfect sense, a certain amount of time for this, a certain amount of time for that. It's hard to see where in the statute, the 37 words was a requirement that we must use this number of days for this or that number of days for that. The department might pull back on that. But my sense is that there are whole swaths of the regulations that are not going to change. The requirement that we post our Title IX coordinators information on our website, the requirement that we give folks access to the evidence that is going to be used to make the determination. We're unlikely to see changes in most of the areas of the regulation from 2020. Well, let's let's shift a little bit here. And some folks may not have heard, but the Supreme Court recently issued an opinion in Cummings versus Premier Rehab Keller. Can you tell us a little bit about that opinion and and what risk managers insurance professionals should know about it, why it's important to us. This is actually a very important Title IX opinion, and risk managers and insurance professionals should become very familiar with it. It is a fairly short, fairly succinct opinion. Obviously, in the last couple of weeks, couple of months, there's been a lot of uh, discussion around the Supreme Court. And there has not been as much discussion of this very important case. This case was brought under a different law. It was not brought under Title IX, but there are four laws that the Supreme Court analyzed as having similar language in the congressional legislation that was passed. And the very, very long story short is that this was a case that included, among other things, a claim for emotional damages. And the court looked at the history of contract law and a bunch of other things and decided that 
under that law, which had to do with rehabilitation, the Affordable Care Act, et cetera, medical stuff, and also under other similar language laws, including Title IX, the, there would be a general rule that in actions such as that, damages for mental suffering are not allowable. That is the quote from there. So therefore, the court said that they, unless Congress specifically says that you would allow for damages for emotional distress, that those damages would not be available. Now, this will fundamentally change the calculation around litigation for Title IX violations. And again, I'm not saying good, bad, or otherwise, but as insurance professionals and as risk managers think about the risk profile of the institution, where, among other things, they think about what could be the potential cost in litigation, whether it would be uh, better or worse to settle, whether it would be better or worse to conduct litigation in this or that format, a very, very large piece of what would have been the damages has been taken away. Now, Congress may make a change to these four laws. There are certainly going to be discussions of that. But for now, if someone were to file a lawsuit uh, under Title IX, and of course, for many decades now, there's been what we call a private right of action under Title IX. A student, a person can sue a college or university or a K-12 for violating their Title IX rights. The emotional damages, which would be a large swath of the judgment in many cases, is no longer available. So this may significantly change the, the cost calculus, both for institutions as they think about these cases, as well as for potential plaintiffs and, and students who feel that they are harmed or aggrieved in the Title IX process, whether to bring litigation. Of course, they can still obtain other damages, attorney's fees and the like, so there can still be significant cost to an institution, but this is a major change and one that every insurance professional, every risk manager should have top of mind. We also recently learned that Congress, in reauthorizing the Violence Against Women Act, will require that the Department of Education develop and implement a climate survey. What does the legislation require and what should colleges and universities do to prepare? Yeah, it's never boring in this work, exactly. is it? No, um, not at all. Things so, change all the time. All, all the time. And so somewhat unexpected, the members of Congress had been talking about a national climate survey as part of different uh, proposals for some time, as part of CASA and CASA II uh, and some other things. But basically days before the legislation was signed as part of the giant omnibus bill that funded you know aid to Ukraine and funded you know all sorts of things across the government was a couple of pages that will require the Department of Education to develop and administer or have colleges administer it's not hundred percent clear from the language a climate survey of sexual misconduct on college and university campuses that receive federal funding funding. Now, note, it's a wider swath than those who receive Higher Education Act Title IV funding. So when we think about the Cleary Act and some of the other requirements of the Higher Education Act, this is wider than that. This would be an institution that receives any federal funding. And many colleges and many states require climate surveys and are doing climate surveys. There are this significant good research. I have some 
concerns about a climate survey that the Department of Education will develop. If you look at the legislation, there are a lot of things that will have to be tested. It's an absolute kitchen sink of topics, which are all in and of themselves interesting and useful and, and can collect good data. But when collected all together, we'll create a very, very long survey. The department will have to expect colleges that have done climate surveys before and colleges that have not to be able to, to do this and participate, which will be a challenge. Remember that thousands of colleges and universities are very small technical institutions. They are not fairly obviously the kind of institutions that the framers of this and the drafters were thinking about, four-year liberal arts colleges, larger universities, and the like. They are schools that have a handful of staff and dozens of students who may not be in the same position to be able to conduct a climate survey and to be able to keep the results confidential. At thousands of institutions, they receive zero or one report per year. You know, you work at an institution, many of our colleagues work at an institution that receives many reports, has many investigations. And so if someone responds to a climate survey, it's really hard to be able to determine exactly who they are. For an institution, a very small institution of, of tens of students and a couple of, of staff members, if somebody indicates yes in their response to the climate survey, there's no question who it is. And there are some major other security challenges and, and, and implementation challenges. So what does a college or university do to prepare? Well, I think, you know, read the legislation and I put together a piece that we can certainly share out and, and folks can get better acquainted with it. And then we're going to have to kind of wait and see how the department will put this together. There is a requirement that they get feedback from a number of audiences, including higher education. So risk managers and insurance professionals may want to think how they want to frame their concerns or support or ideas in this area and wait to see uh, uh, how the department seeks to move forward with this. I would note that the department has received $0 in appropriation to do this. And by my estimation and my research, this will be the second largest survey in the United States. The decennial census is the largest, and this will be number two. So it is something that will likely require significant funds, significant personnel from the department. And we're going to have to wait and see how that develops. Hmm. So this, a lot of this sounds sort of overwhelming. And so I think if people have questions, we're going to post some resources in the show notes. So if people have questions, they can take a look at those. And if people have questions as they hear this, can they reach out to you, Joe, if they have specific questions and you can perhaps, you know, help answer those if you can. Yeah, absolutely. Folks uh, reach out to me all the time. Uh, we can include some contact information in the show notes, and I'd be happy to talk to any of our colleagues. And you can also find me on the Ermia directory. So that's another way to find my contact information. We are happy to have those conversations. I love talking with Ermia colleagues about this work. I find the folks to be so genuine and so dedicated to really doing the right thing and, and helping their campuses. I, I just, I, I, 
couldn't be more excited uh, about it. And we are going to cover some of these topics at the annual conference. And we hope to see everyone in Indianapolis for that, where we can have some further discussions. Well, and that's, you know, the important thing about Ermia is that you don't have to do these things by yourself, right? And so if people are, you know, confused or concerned or have questions, you know, please feel free to, as Joe said, reach out. So before we wrap up, is there anything else you feel like listeners should know? It is a challenging time and there are a lot of things moving, but I just want to echo what you said between Ermia and the other associations, the other higher education associations, there is so much goodwill and there is so much work to share lessons learned and best practices. It is a real privilege to be a part of the higher education community and a part of the Ermia community. Mm. Well, thank you, Joe, so much for being our guest today. I mean, it is, it's just really reassuring that we have people like you who are very passionate about this, this topic, and you seem to have a great grasp of it. And so people like me who do not have as great of a grasp of it, we can really lean on you to help us get through that. So it's been great to chat with you. And this wraps another episode of Ermia Matters. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Ermia Matters. You can find more information about Ermia at www.urmia.org. For more information about this episode, check out the show notes available to Ermia members in the Ermia Network Library.